So we are continuing our look at the book of James, um, the book written by the half-brother of Jesus. We're in James chapter 1, if you haven't gotten there already in your Bibles. Um, So really where we've been so far is we've talked about trials, and as much as we've talked about how this year is full of trials, I think we need to, to constantly remember that the greater the trial, I think the greater the impressive thing the Lord is doing. And so I, I was convicted this week of the fact that I, I, I talk about how bad 2020 is. Shouldn't that be followed right on the heels of that with how great the God is that's putting, that, putting us through that? And I think that's where we've, we've been. So we've talked about trials that are coming and that we are to count them as joy. We can't do it on our own, so we need the Lord's help. So we ask him for wisdom. And then with that wisdom, what that wisdom's undergirded by is the fact that God is a good God. He is a generous God. He is a perfect giver of gifts. And so all of that combined is to really help us when we talk about this year or this event in our life to then chase it immediately with, but God is good and he's working this. This is going to be something even more amazing. And I firmly believe that that's where we're going. So, so far we've talked about how do you respond to trials? Today, we start into the actual meat of the book of James. Now, that maybe that's encouraging for you, and you're like, oh, awesome. Or maybe you're like, oh, we've already gotten hit a few times. We haven't even gotten to the main point. Yes. So either way, it's going to be exciting. The book of James has got good stuff for us as we move forward. So if the first 18 verses were how to respond to trials, now it's how do you respond to truth? And he's going to lay out for us the truth. So I want to start with a little story. Um, This is where we get the phrase, face the music. You've heard that phrase before. Oh, he's got to face the music, something like that. This came from a man who was a rich man who really wanted to play in the imperial orchestra, but he couldn't play a single note. He was tone deaf, no music ability at all. But because of his wealth, wealth and influence, he convinced the director, he demanded the director to allow him to be in the orchestra. He wanted to play in front of the king. He wanted to play in front of all of his friends. He demanded to be in the orchestra. Couldn't read a note of music. So the orchestra director said, fine, you know, you're wealthy. We'll take your money. Go sit in the, in the front row. And he gave him a flute to play. And he would play his flute pretending to blow, but never even playing a single note. He would stand up. He would take a bow. He'd get all the pats on the back. And it was great. Never made a sound, but got all the acclaim. For two whole years, this went on until the orchestra director retired. And a new orchestra director came on. He said, you know what, I don't care what's been done before for any of you. You're all going to try out and earn your spot in the orchestra. And this man's like, are you sure we need to do that? I mean, we've all, and he goes, nope, you're doing it. So it came to the day that that man was supposed to play the flute that he didn't know how to play. And so he came down with the high school sickness, you know, the day of a test. You go, oh, I feel really sick, and so you stay home. However, the orchestra director's like, we'll just reschedule. Brought him back in. He had to stand in front of the orchestra director, looking at his music, and went, I don't know how to play music. (laughs) So the orchestra director said, well, then you don't have a position here in this orchestra. See you later. And that is where we get the phrase, face the music. He had to face the fact that he did not 
nor did he have any idea how to play any sort of music. He had a fake position in a fake spot. So I tell this story because James is on the same page with the second director. He is on the same page with the idea of you either need to do what you say you do or you need to not say that you're doing it. All right, so we're going to call this being a genuine Christian. So this passage is all about being a genuine Christian, one who hears, one who speaks, and one who acts a certain way. And so we're going to walk through James and look through this. Because remember, where we left last week, we were talking about how God adopted us into his family. But not just adopted us in and we were the the odd black sheep of the family. Instead, he brought us in and he said, I'm going to make you look like my son. I'm going to make you look like me through the sanctification process. So what James is doing here is James is now going to take us in depth through the rest of this letter on how to do that and what it means to be spiritually whole. That's what James wants. He doesn't want this divided person that we saw earlier. Instead, he wants us to be spiritually whole to live consistently. So here we go, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That phrase, know this, is probably, mean, probably is you know this, or you should know this, some sort of kind of demand here. And we see he says, you need to listen, you need to speak, and you need to not have anger. So an emotional uh, outburst. So this is the starting point for the new believers. This is the starting point for someone who's following the Lord. But it's all places that everyone in this room needs to work on. I need to work on these things. And so as we see this, what's so amazing is that God's word is is pertinent for today. It's not something that was just written nearly 2,000 years ago and is some dusty book and, oh, James is so first century. No, it's James is so 21st century. And so there's areas we can all work on, whether you've been a believer for decades or for hours, there's places to work. So James gets right to it. He kind of goes out of order, which again, James is all about breaking down our, you know, thinking linearly kind of view. We got those James sandwiches and things like that. Well, James is doing this again. He says, here's my list. And then he goes in the wrong order. And you're like, James, come on. The OCD in me wants you to go one to one, but you're not doing that. And instead, he goes right to the anger. Maybe he knew that we would get a little upset at the going out of order. So maybe, I don't know. But verse 20, he says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And really, that means the righteousness that God desires. So this word anger is a deep internal resentment and a rejection. It's a, it's a, it's a deep frustration. The Bible talks, and James himself talks about how Anger produces a certain kind of speech, and we'll see that in a few weeks. And then he also produces violence. We'll see that when we get to the end of the book. And with this, James is right in line with the rest of the Bible. Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. In both Ephesians and Colossians, Paul has this long list of things we're to put away and never have anything to do with, and in that list is the word anger. It's the same exact word. See, anger leads us to saying things we don't mean. And this whole section is dealing with how we speak and what we say. And so really, holding our tongue is a key. I heard one man say, I've never had to take back something I didn't say. Never had to take back something I didn't say. 
Think about that when we, when we speak and we talk to people. So many times when we speak, we speak out of anger, out of frustration. I, I daily pray, and I don't always hit it, but I daily pray to the Lord, help me not to discipline my children out of anger. Help me not to speak to them out of anger. Instead, speak to them out of love. Because we're to be slow to anger. Now, probably you're going, but wait a sec, is anger always sinful? And the Bible says, actually, no. In Ephesians 4, 26, it says, be angry. And you're like, yes. And then it says, but do not sin. Oh, okay. So what does that look like? Well, ultimately, it's that quick-tempered, selfish anger. Most of the time when I'm getting mad and I'm getting angry about something, it's because my plan just got ruined. You know, I just put my feet up and I'm ready to kind of relax after a long day and one of my children disobeys. And my, my response is out of anger in a way that does not match the severity of this little teeny thing that they did. But it's because I've been in, inconvenienced. I am not getting to do what I want to do. Because ultimately, anger fails to realize no matter how angry I get, I am not changing that situation. I'm not changing that person's heart. If anything, I'm, they're going to get notice my anger, not what comes out of my mouth. Because the only God is the only righteous one. He's the only one that can be angry, and he is, and not sin. Remember we saw Romans last week where it says, there is nothing good that dwells within me. That's us. Nothing good dwells within us. So many times our anger comes out in ways that is not appropriate. So Paul is saying, be angry, do not sin. In Ephesians, it's kind of like be angry, and if you can do it without sinning, great, but probably not going to happen. Verse 21, therefore. Therefore is one of those cool words in the Bible. It means, because of what I just said, here's my conclusion. I love when it says therefore, because usually it's the person writing to summarize what has come before in his argument. And so for people like myself who can't necessarily track with some of these brilliant writers, I go, oh, cool, he gave us a clue. So James gives us a clue here. He says, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, when I study the Bible for each time when I'm preaching, I like to look at lots of different translations. And sometimes uh, there's a translation that just resonates. And other times there's a translation that just goes, what is that saying? And so I was reading in the King James, and this phrase, rampant wickedness, wickedness is translated a superfluity of naughtiness. I have no idea what that means, but I definitely know I don't want to catch a superfluity of naughtiness, right? And so I looked those words up, and it means an overflowing of wickedness, right? We think naughty. It's like, oh, naughty. It's like something you kind of talk to a child. Oh, that little two-year-old's being naughty. No, that word in the old English was evil, wickedness. So an overflowing of wickedness. He says, put that away. Get rid of it. A different translation also said, strip yourself of everything that soils you and every evil growth. So you imagine the, the, the sin in your life, it soils all of you so that your clothes are filthy. But not only that, it's inside of you growing like a cancer, like an, an evil cyst that's just going to take over everything. It's like what we saw in verses 13, 14, and 15 about how desire conceives and keeps going. So what James is saying is he's saying, put it off, take off, take off those clothes, get out of that filthiness. Now it's important to, to not miss that at the beginning of 21, he's saying 
If you aren't doing the things in 19, you are committing sin. If you're not controlling your tongue, if you're not slow to speak, if you're not quick to listen, if you're not slow to anger, those are sins. Many times we kind of, we categorize our sins and we say, well, this isn't a sin, this is a serious sin, this isn't that. But that's not what James is allowing us to do here. But it's easy when we see verse 21 to go, well, then I just need to try harder, right? It's the American way. It's the pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it. That's not what James is saying here. This idea of putting away is to repent and go a new direction. It's not what people think of with religion, which is try harder. Here's your model. Go be like them. Instead, it's, I can't possibly hit that mark. I need help. Praise be to God, the Holy Spirit is in my life. So James moves in the second half of 21 to receiving, accepting with meekness the implanted word. That word meekness gets lost on us. It means humbly, saying I can't do it. So right there you see, you can't do it, you need help. We're spiritually bankrupt. But praise be to God, look, it says he implants the word. That means it's not native to us, but he comes and he puts it in there so that now we have God's word growing in us. I'm reminded of passages in the Old Testament like Jeremiah 31, 31. I'll put my law in your mind and write it on your heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. My word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Or the famous one in Ezekiel that says, I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. These promises are there. And that's the promise that James is referencing here. Then it says, which is the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And kind of hidden in that language there is the word able. That word able in the Greek is the word dynamus. It means Power, it's where we get the word dynamite. So that the word is able, it has the power to save your soul, this eternal soul. For it to save something that is eternal, it has to be better than eternal, and that is the power to save your soul. This ultimate deliverance from death. Now, it's also the power to save your soul has this idea of continuous, and that's that growing to be more like Christ as we become more looking more like Christ because we're adopted. That's the sanctification. So in summary of this first, this first section of this anger, we are to not do a couple things. We're not to be passive when it comes to our following of Christ. We're not to just kind of be like, yeah, I've kind of bought into following Jesus, but I'm not giving my all. We're not to do that. We're not to also do nominalism, this idea of, well, I go to church, so therefore I'm right with the Lord. Instead, it's got to be, I have fully bought into this. It's a full life decision. Because if we entertain any of the wickedness, if we go, well, you know, I just do just enough, it doesn't match with what James is talking about here. And we'll see it as we continue. So the second thing we see is that we're to be quick to hear. Quick to hear. The, 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 The actual wording of this is, Hurry up and listen. You know, hurry up and stop and listen. Hurry up and shut your mouth and listen. Not just waiting till when someone takes a breath so you can start talking. I have a tendency to do that. But instead, it is listening so you understand what they're saying. Because listening is a form of love. Right? The Bible says there's, there's two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. The simplest way to love your neighbor as yourself is to love what they're saying. Because if it's important enough for them to utter, 
it's important enough for you to show that you love them through what you say and how you don't say. And listening was important in this time. Remember that when the book of James, when the letter of James was written, there was no Bible floating around of the New Testament. It hadn't been collected yet. So there were copies here and there, but it was spoken and people spoke it. It was an oral culture. The Jewish culture was always that way. And so when someone got up to read the book of James, everybody was quiet. They were listening because this was the only way they'd get it. Praise the Lord that we have more Bibles than we know what to do with. And we can read it. But this is why James is saying you have to not only hear, but you have to do. Verse 22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Romans 2, 13. Don't be hearers of the law, but be doers of the law. So James is focusing here on not just simply do it once, but continuous, doers, constantly doing. So we take, we accept the implanted word that the Holy Spirit has brought us as believers in Christ, and then we do what it says. This picture of deceiving yourselves at the end of 22. This is a word that means beside oneself, but really to understand this, you have to understand this word means a mathematical miscalculation. And so professing Christians who believe that by hearing what somebody says and not doing it are making a spiritual miscalculation. Charles Spurgeon, of course, says it very well. He says, to deceive is bad, to deceive yourself is worse, to deceive yourselves about your soul is the worst of all. Remember the warning that Jesus gave. Many who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty works? That's a lot of miracles that these people are doing. And Jesus says what? Away from me, I never knew you. I'd say that's a serious spiritual miscalculation. It's not enough to hear. It's not enough to know. It's not enough to attend. It has to be followed by doing. Planted in your heart. Your heart runs your body. If it's in your heart, it pumps to your extremities. It goes everywhere. It becomes all of you. What a terrifying thing to look at that Matthew passage and think, I could sit a lifetime in a church and stand before the Lord and have him say, away from me, I never knew you. It's a scary thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I think there's going to be people that are, are, are thinking they're right with the Lord because of the amount of degrees they have, amount of books that they have, amount of uh, diplomas and so on. But if you don't know the Lord and then obey him, then oh, away from me, I never knew you. Because you think about it, and I, I don't, this might be the first time I've ever heard anybody, so I'm hearing myself do it, ever use Satan as an analogy like this. Satan has good theology, doesn't he? He does. He believes that God exists. He knows the Trinity. He knows about sin. He knows about Jesus' death on the cross. He quotes the Bible to Jesus. So what does he get wrong? He doesn't submit. He doesn't obey. Don't be like Satan. All right? I think that, that that to me, when I heard that, that idea came to me, just that just kills to think about Am I putting my trust in the Lord? 
Because I've got books, I've got diplomas, I've got knowledge. Do I have that relationship with the Lord? Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. This guy starts off well. He's a hearer. He's heard the word. Then the mirror is in front of him. God's mirror is what shows us what we are really like. And we delude ourselves with thinking that just the hearing is enough. It's not enough. Again, this guy starts off really well. It says he looks intently. So he gets up close and he's looking in the mirror and he sees something on his face and then he goes, well, I should probably get that off my face, but then walks out the door and has nothing to do with removing it. We would say that person is ridiculous. This active scrutiny of looking closely, seeing the imperfections, and then walking away and doing nothing about it. The believer in whom the word is implanted is called to hear and obey, not just hear and think that you're all right. We must put it into practice. Ultimately, obedience is the true test of spirituality. We're going to see this throughout the book of James. If you have faith, you follow it with obedience. If you know and you hear, you then become a doer. Oh, Lord, deliver us from the delusion of thinking we know enough. And that's all that matters. Verse 24, he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Forgets what he was like. You know, the Lord, he loves to speak to us. And when he does, he expects prompt action. Many times we put it off and we go, eh, maybe it's indigestion. Maybe I'm just, you know, having a rough morning. We put it off and we put it off and we put it off. And before you know it, we don't even remember what it was he said. Because ultimately, what we love, we prioritize. It gets our full attention. Think about that person in your life that means the most to you. When they call, you don't ghost them and, and hit, you know, send it to voicemail. You answer the phone. And if the Lord is speaking to you, you need to respond immediately. Listening to preaching on Sunday mornings and going about your day and forgetting about it and not letting the Lord work on you by lunchtime, we are the fool. We are the one that's right here. But see, I think a lot of us, I know for myself, I always viewed church as kind of almost penance, right? That idea that I have to work off some sins. And so I would go to church on Sunday and the pastor would yell and raise his voice and say a bunch of stuff that would make me feel convicted. And I'd be like, oh, okay, I feel terrible. Great, I've done my work, go do my thing. Or maybe it's the other way. I feel terrible when I walk in and I want to be encouraged to then go do the things that made me feel terrible. We have this view that church is this like penance, this way to work off the things that we did throughout the, the week. I remember there was a movie where the, one of the, the lead actresses, she said, I got to go to church on Sunday to make up for all the bad stuff I did during the week. That's how we live. And James points out how ridiculous this is. He said, it's so ridiculous, it's like looking in a mirror and then turning over to another mirror and not knowing who you're seeing. Seeing your face in a police lineup and not being able to pick yourself out. Because it's not enough to hear. It's not enough to attend. It has to be followed with obedience. James, praise the Lord, does not leave us with that. He tells us what a good example of this would be. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all he does. Another translation says, but the one who peers into the perfect law, 
and fixes his attention there and does not become a forgetful listener, but is one who lives it out, he will be blessed. So this individual in verse 25 is a, is a superior listener. Not only does he look into, but the idea is, is that he gets down close and he continually looks. He looks, and then he does, and then he looks some more, and then he does, and then he looks some more, and back and forth and back and forth. This perfect law is the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, fulfilled by Christ, thus perfecting it. And it leads to liberty. One of those words that we throw around, the word liberty means freedom, right? Freedom from sin. The Holy Spirit comes in and releases us from bondage. So what James is saying is, obey God's word and you will feel and be free. Now in our culture, that's just crazy talk. Here's a rule, go follow this rule and obey it and you will be free. Instead, our culture says the exact opposite. The only way to be truly free is to have no restrictions, no anything boxing me in. I'm totally free, I can do what I want. This imposing of rules is by definition lack of freedom. But in the Bible, it says real freedom is not absence of constraint, but correct constraints and living inside those constraints. Think of it like this. Our culture would say, you know, that fish and that, that goldfish is really not free in that, in that fishbowl. We need to take him out of the fishbowl, no constraints, throw him down there on the table, and he's totally free. Now, even my six-year-old in the back back there can tell you what happens next. Goldie flops around, and then Goldie goes to be with the Lord. That's what happens when you remove the correct constraints. And so the Bible lays this out for us. True freedom is living within the constraints that were designed for you and recognizing that's what's best for you. True freedom is the environment we're meant to be in and then flourishing within that. And that is obedience to God's word. So yes, our world, they see the constraints that the Bible has. They have no idea what obedience is. They have no idea who this God is we serve. And so for them, it looks oppressive. For us as redeemed individuals with the implanted word, it is true freedom. No longer am I serving the sin in my life, I'm serving the one who conquered that sin. Now, we will say, oh, I'm willing to do that, but, you know, I don't think God has called me to do that. If you listen and he says do something and you don't do it, you didn't really listen. You haven't listened. You may have heard, but you haven't listened. Anybody, anybody any parents in here hear that, tell you that to your kids? I know you heard me, but you didn't listen, Right? That, that's the concept of, of you have to actually do it. Don't be willing to obey. Obey. Don't be willing to help the poor. Help the poor. Don't be willing to share the gospel. Share the gospel. Don't be willing to live in purity. Be pure. We hear people say, well, Jesus loves you just the way you are. Yep, but he doesn't leave you just the way you are. And this is the apex of what James is teaching here. He needs, we need to do it's the difference between reading a menu and eating the feast. It's not enough to read the menu. If you sit there with the menu, you're over at Claim Jumpers and you got the menu in front of you and you just sit there for seven or eight days, you're dead. But if you sit there and you order the feast and then you partake of it, you live. The feast is prepared. 
Are you willing to eat? Third thing we see is that it says in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious, that means appears to be religious by what they do, but does not bridle his tongue, deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So we have to control our tongue. Again, James is totally right in line with the Old Testament. If your words are many, transgressions not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, all from the Proverbs. It's better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open it and eliminate any doubt. So this is the starting point of good religion, controlling your mouth. It's not just when we speak person to person, but it's everything we do. It's all forms of communication. This includes in person, this includes on the phone, this includes over the internet. How do we represent Christ in our world? And, and he says clearly, you have to, if you are a religious person, now this word religion means you do the things that go with religion, like going to church, like going to a life group, like baptism, like tithing, whatever, all of these things that make religion, he says, if you think you're that, but you don't control your tongue, you're deceived. You're not there. It's a key of, it's a sign of false religion. And actually, he even goes farther and he says, this religion is worthless. That word worthless is the word vain, which is what they used for idols. They would say, that's a vain, a vain God. And then they'd say, that's the true God, vain gods. So he, you're, you're, you're worshiping, your religion is idolatry. It's not real religion if you're not choosing to hold your tongue. So again, we are told to do this. Don't hear that, again, this is pull yourself up, learn to tame your tongue, you know? Hope that your husband or wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or good friend elbows you when you're getting ready to say something. That's not it. It's repent of what we say, what we tweet, what we post, what we've talked about, and turn to the Lord and ask him for his help and the Holy Spirit to pour himself out into you so that you can do it. So there, there's the three topics we see. And then James finishes us off with, he goes, okay, I've told you all what not to do. Let me tell you what to do. And I love that James does this. He doesn't just leave us hanging. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. That's the religion I want. I want pure religion. I want my religious service to the Lord to be pure and a sacrifice to him. Is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. King James Version, free from the smut of the world. I think he nailed it. This idea is we have to be externally focused and internally focused. Care for those who can't care for themselves and care for my personal holiness. James does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without these things is worthless. This is not a religion's all bad. Instead, this is a how-to on how to be religious. It's how to have a purely pure religion. And really, it's two sides of the horse, and a lot of times people fall off on one or the other. They're either really worried about caring for those who can't care for themselves, or they're really worried about being holy. And James says, you got to have both. So the first one we see is care for widows and orphans. This means those who can't stand for themselves. These are those who are powerless to care for themselves. They can't even pay you back. That's how much trouble they're in. So we're, we're to imitate God in this. You think about Christ came down 
and came to us as orphans because we were, we were estranged from God because of our sin, and yet he brought us to him. Notice what it says here, though. It doesn't say, give them money, vote for the politician that says this, come up with a plan, you know, send them prayers. Those are all good things, and you could do. But he says, real religion, pure religion, is to what? Visit them in their affliction. You see, we are to incarnate. That means to enflesh Christ to these people. When we go and we are there with them with, in their trials, we get to be right there with them and say, there is a father to the fatherless. There is a father to the orphans. And his name is God. And I am here as his representative. Let's get through this together. This is what we saw in Philippians 2. Christ came and became one of us. He forsook heaven to come down and be in the flesh to help us. James 1, the word became flesh and lived among, dwelled among us. So there we go. We're to dwell, we're to be with the poor, we're to be with the widows, we're to be with the orphans. See, and James says it's not, it's not even okay for us to just be angry on their account. You know, get mad about it, protest, do whatever we can instead of actually being with them. Don't throw money at them, don't throw your anger at them. Go be with them, care for the poor. God is not looking for a spokesperson for the orphans and the widows. He's looking for someone to be their friend and to point them to Christ. And it isn't amazing. Christianity breaks down all the barriers. One of the things that's awesome about Christianity is that we interact with people that we would never interact with, with for any other reason. That's what Christianity has always done. It's brought the rich and the poor, white, black, young, old, all together because that's the way the church is supposed to be, the capital C church, breaking down all the barriers. I love that, the unified growth together. The second thing we see is the unstained. And we, we, a lot of times we think, well, the Bible's all about doing things and making sure that I'm doing something. That's that religion piece. But James says, no, no, we gotta also be clean on the inside. We need to be unstained, undefiled. Our world has a way that they think that we are to not be at home in. We are to be those, those exiles that are not apart. We are to not be polluted by the world. Remember, it says, I did not take them out of the world, but I asked that you would not make them of the world. And the temptation is for us to, to just kind of soften down Christianity and, oh, you know, as long as you're not doing big sins, you're okay. But that's not what he says. He says to be absolutely pure, to be undefiled, nothing Nasty there. None of the smut of the world. So the three things that we see. Control the tongue. Care for widows and orphans. Keep yourself unstained by the world. He puts all three of those together because all three need to be in us. It's not enough to just do one. Well, I don't care for widows or poor and I don't worry about my, my internal purity but I bridle my tongue. Great. Your religion's worthless. Well, but I care for the widows and poor, but I do whatever I want in my free time and I'm totally stained and my mouth is just running amok. Guess what? Your, your worship is vain. It's worthless. It's to idols. It's not real. All has to be there or none of it is there. So what are you lacking? What am I lacking? Are we, are we controlling our mouths? Are we caring for those who can't care for themselves? Are we pursuing holiness on a daily basis? Which of those are we lacking? 
And each and every one of us needs to have that conversation with the Lord. See, James starts with trials, but the thrust of this book, the thrust of this letter, is to have Christians who are Christians, not just Christians in name only. He wants us to act like we believe the gospel by living it out and showing the new growth. He's told us what the root is. He's implanted the word. Now he's going to start talking to us about the fruit. Praise be to the Lord that he's the gardener and he's the one that's going to do it in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your servant, your your half-brother James and these words that he gave us. Lord, I just praise you that they are still for us today, thousands of years later, that we can still be met here with them. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to have that pure and undefiled religion that glorifies you. I pray, Lord, that where we are weak, you would be strong. You would grow in us a desire to be doers of your word, not just hearers only. Lord, bless us now as we worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.